Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Chapter 11 of Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, introduces the concept or the notion of the meme. And there's a couple interesting features to point out about that right off the bat. It's been a while since Dawkins introduced this term, and even when he introduced it, it wasn't really a radically new idea. There are analogs to this in the writings of many other people antedating Dawkins to talk about how it is that culture and ideas and practices are replicated, transmitted, and reinterpreted. We're going to put that to the side. The other thing we have to point out as well, for viewers and and listeners who are used to the use of the word meme in a somewhat different context, that of the internet, the word does originate with Richard Dawkins, but then it interestingly, like a meme, takes on a life of its own and comes to mean a set of other things within the sphere of the internet. Could this be understood and explained on the basis of Dawkins' notion of a meme? Yes, I think it could. That's another separate issue, a bigger issue that we're going to put aside for the moment. Here, let's figure out what does he actually mean by meme. And he apologizes for introducing this term. He says that I hope my classicist friends will forgive me if I abbreviate it, if it's any consolation, etc., etc. Right? So he's he's saying I'm deliberately introducing a we could call it meta-cultural unit in here. And he says, we need a name for the new replicator, a noun that conveys the idea of a unit of cultural transmission or a unit of imitation. So he turns to Greek and he takes mimim, right? Coming from the Greek term mimesis, which means imitation. And mimesis has been associated not just with imitation or mimicry, but also with artistic and indeed other types of production since the time of Plato, who talks about art as mimesis, right? So this is a idea, a word that's got some long-standing credibility. Dawkins wants to abbreviate it because he likes a nice monosyllabic word like gene, something like that. So meme is what he forms. He clips off the first part of it, which is kind of interesting because it's reducing it in, in a, you could say its size, in its syllabic content, but also maybe stripping off a little bit of its older conception. He says, if it's any consolation, it could alternatively be thought of as being related to memory, mnemne in Greek, right? And it's in, there's a lot that could be said about the connection between mimesis and memory in ancient philosophy onward. And then he says, or it could be related to the French word mem, which means same, among other things, right? And he says it should be pronounced a rhyme with cream. Very good that he gave us that, because otherwise we'd probably wind up in the same sort of quandary that the inventor of the GIF, right? 
or the GIF, depending on how people want to pronounce it. The inventor actually did weigh in and say, eventually, it's GIF, not GIF. But there's there's a lot of people who, you know, go to verbal war over that. So meme, he's given us the term, what does a meme mean? What is the notion of a meme? He starts out first by giving us a bunch of examples. And what do these include? Tunes, ideas, catchphrases, clothes fashions, ways of making pots or building arches. And he says, just as genes propagate themselves in the gene pool by leaping from body to body, memes propagate themselves by leaping from brain to brain. If a scientist hears or reads about a good idea, he passes the idea on to his colleagues. And the examples that Dawkins is going to use in this chapter fit into those. So, you know, the idea of God, for example, right? That's an idea. He brings up tunes. He asks the question, is an entire symphony a meme? Or is the da-da-da-da of a symphony a particular meme? And you might actually think of the test for that as the old show, Name That Tune, where you would have to bid on how few notes would be played before you could identify that as that tune, right? I know, for example, I could say, Don, 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 Don. And what tune is that? Well, Running With The Devil by Van Halen, of course, right? That's not enough to be a meme, except within a circumstance, if you're with fellow metalheads and you started doing that, probably a lot of them would catch on. Whereas if you're doing that in the larger public, maybe nobody would actually know what you're doing. So memes might also be, to some degree, dependent on particular contexts to be identifiable and to work as memes. So he's got all these examples, and these tie in with the examples of cultural reproduction that he was giving earlier, language, fashion, and dress, and diet. We could think of dishes, perhaps, as memes, right? Or flavor profiles as memes, ceremonies and customs, art and architecture, engineering, and technology, all these things that evolve. All of them evolve, he thinks, on the basis of memes. And they do propagate themselves, as he says, from brain to brain, right? He actually uses the word parasitizing. We, we might think of them also as sort of like viral, to use a term that we use today. And he goes on and he says, when you plant a fertile meme in my mind, you literally parasitize my brain, turning it into a vehicle for the meme's propagation in just the way that a virus may parasitize the genetic mechanism of a host cell. Maybe that's going a little bit too far because there could be other modes. Maybe it's not all like, you know, viral stuff. And he says, this isn't just a way of talking. The meme for, say, belief in life after death is actually realized physically millions of times over as a structure in the nervous systems of individual men the whole world over. Now, so this is quite interesting. And this should raise some questions at this point that we'll have to look at a little bit later, like the idea of life after death, is that really a meme or is the idea of reincarnation as opposed to the idea of going to a good place or a bad place or the idea of just going to kind of a crappy place unless you happen to be lucky enough to be reincarnated with Tlaloc or with Huitzapotli. These are all different notions of life after death. Are they separate memes? is to take one example, the nine levels, the nine circles of Dante's Inferno. Are, is each one of them a meme? Is each type of torture a meme? Or is the totality itself a meme? How general can memes be? Life after death, that's pretty vague. The notion of God is he's going to talk about. That's a pretty vague idea too. Is that really a meme? Or is it something different? Well, this is not 
answered very well in this chapter where he's introducing this idea, but it's something that could be worth checking out. And he brings up how this propagation works. He says, consider the idea of God. We don't know how it arose in the meme pool. Probably it originated many times by independent mutation. In any case, it is very old indeed. How does it replicate itself? Here's where it gets interesting. By the spoken and written word aided by great music and great art. Later on, he'll talk about church services and the different aspects, the different rituals, the different design features as being parts of meme complexes that would be connected with God. And, you know, it seems like there's a lot of different moving parts here. So he says, what is it about the idea of God that gives it its stability and penetrance in the cultural environment? The survival value of the God meme in the meme pool results from its great psychological appeal. It provides a superficially plausible answer to deep and troubling questions about existence. And so he goes on from there. God exists if only in the form of a meme with high survival value or infective power in the environment provided by human culture. Now, there's a lot of hand-waving going on here and a lot of reductivist tendencies and Dawkins is not really somebody to be believed much when, when it comes to analyses of religion, but there's something here. Maybe if we think about ideas of God or the gods or different competing conceptions, pantheism versus panentheism versus monotheism, understood in different ways. Are we talking about classical theism? Are we talking about open theism? Each of these could be perhaps a meme. And then how do we explain their continuance? Well, they they must have some sort of appeal. That's how they get into brains. And so he goes on and he he considers the analogy between memes and genes. He had said earlier that there's really three main things that are involved in imitation replication, whether it be DNA or memes, longevity, fecundity, and copying fidelity. What does longevity mean in this case? He says that the longevity of any one copy of a meme is probably relatively unimportant as it is for any one copy of a gene. And he gives the example, the song, Old Lang Syne, which people sing or whistle or hum at New Year's, right? It's that one, let old acquaintance be forgot, da, 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 because nobody actually knows the rest of the words except for a few people, but they do know the tune. Da, 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 And then we get to the chorus, oh, for old Lang Syne, right? And that's the other part that people know, which goes to show you that you don't actually have to like have great copying fidelity, A lot of people can't remember half of the words to the song that he's actually using there. And how long did that meme last? It lasted while it was in the air while we were referring to it, but it's also up in our heads, occupying some space, whether you realize it or not, if you recognized that song, right? So that's providing it with longevity. He says, the copy of the same tune that's printed in my volume of the Scottish student songbook, (laughs) typical Dawkins there, right? Uh, Having a book that none of us would, is unlikely to last much longer, but I expect there'll be copies of the same tune on paper and in people's brains for centuries to come. So if a meme is a scientific idea, he says, its spread will depend on how acceptable it is to the population of individual scientists. We might, you know, count the number of times it's referred to in successive years in scientific journals. If it's a popular tune, we might gauge it by the number of people heard whistling it in the streets. And actually, I think that's a much better index if we were able to pull that off than, you know, how many records it sold or whether it's made its way into American Idol or Guitar Hero. Whether Whether people actually do understand and respond to that song is probably a a measure of that. What about fecundity? 
Okay, so this is how well it's able to reproduce itself. He says, as in the case of genes, fecundity is much more important than longevity of particular copies, right? So being able to catch on, being able to reproduce itself. And this is where we get to the third thing, copying fidelity. It might be that fecundity, in the case of some genes, actually responds on a degradation of copying fidelity, right? Simplification of things. So, and he brings up, interestingly, Charles Darwin. He says that when we say biologists believe in Darwin's theory, we don't mean that every biologist has graven in his brain an identical copy of the exact words of Charles Darwin himself. Each individual has his own way of interpreting Darwin's ideas. He probably learned them not from Darwin's own writings, but from more recent authors. Much of what Darwin said is in detail wrong. Darwin, if he read this book would scarcely recognize his own original theory in it, though I hope he would like the way I put it. Yet, in spite of this, there is something, some essence of Darwinism, which is present in the head of every individual who understands the theory. So he says that this is the way in which we have some degree of copying fidelity. So that's an interesting point. We also want to think about what counts as competition for memes. So he uses the analogy of computer memory. Back in the time that he's writing, you would have to kind of compete in, in research projects to get computers. Now we have so many computers. People do still have to compete. And now it's more like our own programs are competing with each other. Like Chrome uses a lot of memory for the computer more than other browsers, right? So in a way, memes are like that. How much headspace, how much brain neuron connections do they take up and connect with? That's one question. But he also talks about externalized spaces, billboards, newspaper space, spaces in journals and books at libraries. We might talk about the internet itself and go back to computer metaphors and say, well, how many sites are actually using this particular meme or generating it, right? And so that's how they compete with each other. They compete with each other in what we might call, uh, to use a term that he's not using here, the attention economy. How much attention are we giving them? If I'm paying attention to this song over here, you know, for example, Judas Priest breaking the law and I've got that stuck in my head, as an earworm that I'm not actually hearing Iron Maiden's The Trooper, even though they're in the same genre and actually quite close to each other in time and originating out of the same, we might say, meme soup of heavy metal, right? So they can compete with each other in, in that way. They might also, although he doesn't suggest this, refer to each other in interesting ways as well. And memes, to complicate this a bit further, memes, he says, can be subdivided. So if we take Darwin's theory, for example, if it consists in a number of different points that we might accept some of and disagree about others, those are separate memes. So now memes can be broken down further into other memes, and they might also be associated in meme complexes. To take the issue of the symphony and the first you know, 12 bars of it, the first 12 bars, if they're recognizable, might be a meme, particularly if they're used in commercials or Dawkins brings up being used for the introduction of a television show. But the symphony itself can be considered to be one big meme that's a conglomeration of other memes. And he interestingly points out, if you have too much of the single bit in your head, you might actually not be able to appreciate the symphony as a whole. So memes turn out to be quite 
complicated. Are they really a unit of cultural transmission in the sense of being like an atom that we stick together with other atoms? Not exactly. They can connect with each other. They can fuse into each other or break up into separate memes. So unit is being used here in a much more relational way than, you know, we might say with genetic materials where there's something a bit more discrete that we can look at. But even with genetic materials, we can have gene complexes as he pointed out. So this is the conception that Dawkins has of a meme at the time that he's writing the self selfish gene. Obviously, there has been some cultural evolution in terms of the concept of meme that has resulted in alternate understandings of meme that have propagated themselves in culture in ways going beyond, but perhaps explicable through Dawkins' very concept. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.